0: And this is chapter 89 of A History of England. We start in 1812, when the successor to Spencer Percival, Britain's only murdered Prime Minister, was appointed. And, as we'll see, a great many other things happened too. In 1987, after winning her third election in a row, Margaret Thatcher let it be known that she was leaving on holiday and taking a biography of Lord Liverpool as her reading material. That was either encouraging or horrifying, depending on how you felt about her. Liverpool was prime minister for 15 years. After eight years in power, was Maggie planning on rivaling him? On the surface, Liverpool seems to have done little as prime minister. But if you look more closely, you discover that was just an appearance. As the historian Boyd Hilton points out, he was a supreme behind the scenes operator making things happen, and above all, making them happen the way he wanted. Hilton reckons he separated politics from policy. Politics was about skilfully managing the arithmetic of parliamentary support and opposition. The cabinet was an important tool in that game, but only as a means of promoting the people who support Liverpool needed to get his measures through parliament. Policy, on the other hand, was about choosing those measures – That, you might feel, is what a cabinet is for. But no, Liverpool had a separate, more secret group, including some cabinet ministers, but also others chosen for their understanding of the needs of government. This group helped him to reach decisions, and cabinet might only be informed once they were made. So Liverpool was a smart operator. Not that he was anyone's first choice as a successor to Spencer Percival. The Prince Regent had some favoured candidates including Richard Wellesley, the former Governor-General of India and Wellington's older brother. But the Prince wanted a coalition government and the Whig leaders were simply not prepared to serve with the Tories. Castlereagh and Canning were still out of office although the latter did bid for the top job and made it clear he wouldn't accept any other. Castlereagh, by contrast, was glad to be brought into government at all, and eventually accepted the post of Foreign Secretary. In the end, the Percival government simply stayed in place under new management. Liverpool, the previous Secretary of State for War and the Colonies, accepted the post of Prime Minister, though he felt he should only hold it until a more suitable candidate could be found which is ironic seeing as he stayed in the job for 15 years. Liverpool sat in the Lords. It was vital to control the Commons, where the Tories were short of major figures. Poor old Castlereagh had to take on the role of leader of the House of Commons, as well as that of Foreign Secretary. He stuck it out for years, but we shall see that in the long term, the combination represented more stress than he could handle. Such, then, was the Liverpool government. And the biggest item on his agenda? Why, the war with France, of course. After the short-lived attempt at resistance represented by the Fifth Coalition in 1809, the only opposition to Napoleon on land was the relatively small British and Portuguese force in the Iberian Peninsula. Austria may have been chafing in its bonds, but bound it remained. As for Russia the Treaty of Tilsit had made it a French ally, however unenthusiastically. Then came the year 1812, the year Liverpool formed his government and a turning point for the war. For two wars, in fact, as we'll see. In that year, Napoleon decided that he'd had enough of countries that were undermining his blockade against Britain, the continental system. Both Russia and Sweden were ostensibly members, but both were quietly allowing British trade through. Napoleon sent troops into Swedish Pomerania, now German territory, to bring the Swedes into line. Next, he decided it was time to bring Russia to heel too. It was to be the worst decision of his career. Recruiting from France and from the many conquered territories, Napoleon had built a colossal Grande Armée, the most fearsome army on earth. Now he launched it over 600,000 strong towards Moscow. At first, all went well. His advance seemed unstoppable. But then he met a Russian army under a wily general, Marshal Kutuzov. Their battle at Borodino, immortalised in Tchaikovsky's best-known composition, the 1812 Overture, may have been the bloodiest in history up to that date. Between killed, wounded and captured, the French lost 25,000 to 40,000 and the Russians 40,000 to 45,000. Technically, it was a French victory since they remained in command of the field with the road to Moscow open to them. But Kutuzov retreated in good order and regrouped south of the city to wait. Napoleon later said, The most terrible of all my battles was the one before Moscow. The French showed themselves to be worthy of victory, but the Russians showed themselves worthy of being invincible. Napoleon occupied Moscow, from which most of the inhabitants had fled. Both the French and the Russians have been accused of burning Moscow, but in a predominantly wooden city, missing most of the people who might have put out a fire, it was perhaps inevitable that it would eventually blaze. The French stayed for five weeks, waiting for the Tsar to surrender, as Napoleon believed he would once the French had taken the capital. But no surrender came. With supplies running low, the French began to pull out on the 19th of October. Temperatures were already falling. The retreat from Moscow has become a byword for military disaster. There's a story that the Russian Tsar Alexander I claimed that Russia has two generals in whom she can confide, generals Janvier and Fevrier, January and February. The story may not be true, but the message is winter finished off the Grande Armée. Napoleon, however, wasn't there to see it. News of an attempted coup d'etat against him in Paris had sent him hurrying back leaving the army to fend for itself, rather as had happened in Egypt 13 years earlier. French losses in Russia have been estimated at between 400,000 and 484,000. By way of comparison, Wellington's entire force in the Peninsular War at that time was 72,000. That other war, incidentally, was reaching a turning point too. Wellington had become a specialist in defensive war since he had generally faced huge odds. The French Armée d'Espagne, or Army of Spain, numbered 360,000 men at its peak. He was a master of logistics, keeping his armies well supplied, at least in military equipment, if less well in food. He also liked to choose his fields of battle carefully, so he had good lines of retreat if he needed them. France had turned artillery to devastating effects, followed up by men charging in columns and breaking through the old-style infantry lines by sheer weight of numbers. Wellington liked to station his men on a reverse slope, the side of a hill away from the enemy, where they were relatively safe from cannon fire. That meant the column would for a time be charging an empty crest, only to see it fill at the last moment with a line of soldiers, which was bad psychologically, and then see it deliver a first volley, which was bad physically. In 1812, Wellington got his chance to prove his skill in offensive operations. He led his combined British, Portuguese and Spanish force in a first attempt to drive the French finally from Spain. Facing not Napoleon, but only some of his marshals, nothing like the equal in skill of the master, Wellington's army did well, eventually capturing the capital, Madrid, itself. But he hadn't the force to resist the counter-attack. The French had to spread their forces throughout Spain to maintain their occupation, but nonetheless were able to concentrate enough men to push Wellington back out and into Portugal. He did, however, return the next year, and this time won a series of victories culminating in one aptly named, for the winners at least, the Battle of Bittoria. Now he was poised to enter France itself. There was nothing pretty about the Peninsular War. According to historian Alice Parker, British soldiers often engaged in actions that should be regarded as war crimes. She shows how the men were brutalised by the war. They were underpaid, underfed and overexposed to traumatising experiences. Discipline was harsh, including floggings and executions, which they were forced to witness. It's true that the French, as hated occupiers, carried out still more atrocities. But British soldiers were frequently exposed to the results in the form of hanged men, burnt men, even skinned men. This was also the war which made guerrilla a word in the common language, and Spanish guerrillas, or even regular soldiers, could be just as cruel in their reprisals against the French. Wellington's soldiers fought terrifying battles, none bloodier than sieges. These often involved men forcing their way into a city through a breach in its walls, a narrow opening which defenders might line with blades to impale attackers, while they also poured projectiles and explosives down on them from above. The first unit into a breach was called the Forlorn Hope, because it could suffer 100% casualties. Those who made it into the city clambered over dead bodies or wounded men, often friends of theirs. Once in, their terror and horror might well find a vent in an orgy, often alcohol fueled of looting, raping and killing. Officers struggled to restore order when they weren't complicit themselves. It was no help that Wellington regarded his men as the scum of the earth. You might expect that attitude from a member of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy that upheld the Protestant ascendancy on Catholic Ireland, but many of his officers doubtless shared it. It was a vicious, brutal war. That doesn't justify the atrocities, but it perhaps explains why all sides committed them. That's all sides. No one was above such behaviour. But back to the turning point year of 1812. As their relations with France worsened, both Sweden and Russia had patched up their differences with Britain. Then, after the destruction of the Grande Armée in Russia, Prussia and Austria rediscovered their fighting spirit. Whole Prussian armies began to go over to the Allies to free themselves of French rule. Just as the Spanish called their struggle against the French the War of Independence, so the Prussians and many other Germans called theirs the Wars of Liberation. There'd been a long gap since the brief Fifth Coalition of 1809. By August 1813, when Austria joined, the Sixth was up and ready for action. Astonishingly, Napoleon somehow managed to put together a new army. However, he'd lost too many veterans in Russia, and was now forced to fight with raw conscripts, many far too young. He still had a few victories, but the decisive engagement, the biggest battle on European soil before the First World War, was the Battle of Leipzig, or Battle of Nations, on the 16th to the 19th of October, 1813, where he brought 195,000 men against a Russian, Prussian and Austrian-led force of 430,000. There could only be one outcome. Now the coalition forces swept into France. The Russians, Prussians and Austrians came from the east, the British, Spanish and Portuguese from the southwest. A collapsing economy and defeat on the battlefield brought France to its knees. On the 2nd of April, 1814, the French Senate passed an act declaring Napoleon deposed. He went into exile on the Mediterranean island of Elba. After 21 years of war with only a brief interruption, peace at last returned to Europe. But we haven't quite finished with 1812 yet. That was the year Britain got itself embroiled in another war an unnecessary and avoidable one, and an exercise in futility, not infrequently underscored by impressive incompetence. That's for next week. I hope you can contain your excitement till then. In the meantime, why not catch up with our companion podcast, Who the Hell is Norfolk?, which has its second episode out. Thanks for listening. (coughs)